Welcome to Green Team Speaks To, the podcast for the Paulson Institute's Green Finance Center. Hello, I'm Felicia Wu, Associate Director of the Green Finance Center at the Paulson Institute. Today, we'll be speaking with Marion Har, Executive Director of the Green Digital Finance Alliance. She has a great background in sustainable business and innovation, serving previously as an advisor to the Danish Ministry of Foreign Affairs on such matters. Marianne, welcome to the Green Team Speaks to podcast. Appreciate this amazing opportunity to chat with you today with all that's going on in the world. You are certainly a thought leader at a nexus that is and will be significant as the world becomes more and more reliant on technology and as environmental concerns become ever more front and center. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Likewise. Great. Let's get started. So the Green Digital Finance Alliance aims to leverage digital technologies and innovations to enhance financing for sustainable development. So basically, it squarely occupies that nexus I mentioned earlier. Can you briefly tell us a bit about the alliance and what are some of the objectives for the group and what are some of the most interesting things that you're working on right now? Yeah, most certainly be happy to. So so the alliance was an, announced in 2017 at Davos, um, at the WEF, uh, and it was co-founded by UNIF's executive director at that time, Eric Solheim, and uh, Eric Jing, CEO of Ant Financial. And really why they thought let's, let's establish a not-for-profit foundation as an alliance at that point in time was because they saw that fin- the financial system is digitizing faster than any sector in the economy, but also that the financial system is highly misaligned to the goals of the Paris Agreement and the SDGs. And they saw that this digitization is basically an opening of the financial system to rethink and redesign both uh, financial capital market products, but also at the retail level, how finance engage with the retail client, but also at the regulatory level. So what are the regulatory um, safeguards we need to put in place for a digitizing uh, financial system. So they said, let's pluck some green intent into this big redesign process and let's have a sort of mutual catalyst and NGO to bring the right parties together to enable that to, to deliver. And they set it up as an alliance. And so the name of the alliance is also to reflect that we have a high level advisory board, which is one of our biggest assets, where we also have the pleasure to have Hank Paulson of the Paulson Institute. But we also have a number of other uh, thought leaders and influencers in either finance and digital finance or green that helps to leverage their networks to advance our mission. And, and basically, our mission is to scale green finance, so finance for the Paris Agreement and the green SDGs with fintech and adjacent technologies. And we do that through three strategic pillars of work. So we do experimentation to scale, and that's because Currently in the market, there are very few green digital champions that we can point to when people ask, you know, what does it look like? What do I need to aspire to? What do I need to design for? There are very few of them. One is, of course, the Ant Financial uh, Forest Ant Forest app, but otherwise there are very few. So we do hands-on experiments to bring parties together to work on, on the solutions that we think can scale. Then we work on building green into financial decision-making algorithms, and then we work on policy dialogue. So um, that's our three pillars to uh, scale green finance with FinTech. Great. We're absolutely great believers and supporters of the work that you do. And obviously, we've gotten to a point where we need to think about, really think about ways to scale green finance. And so I think the work that the Alliance is doing is fantastic and, and really trying to move the ball on that 
But now that you've given us a quick peek into what the Alliance is doing and what it's, what it's about, um, how has the pandemic um, impacted the Alliance? The pandemic has clearly changed the world. And for one, it has induced an ongoing global recession. But governments now are being compelled to think through the designs of an economic recovery for their country and, and their people. So from the Alliance point of view, I just wonder what are some actions that governments could take to seize the moment and ensure that their economic recovery is green and sustainable? I agree with the, this is really a turning point in history that we had not seen coming and which is something that governments need to leverage to make sure that the large amounts of recovery and stimulus packages being put into the market will uh, support a green transition through green finance. So really what governments are currently doing, if you look at sort of the stimulus and recovery measures that have been announced that are green, then they tend to focus on the sectors that are very aligned, of course, with their NDCs, so their national uh, determination contributions to the Paris Agreement. So quite a lot of states, uh, Germany, Italy, but also in developing nations are looking at uh, pumping uh, recovery funds into energy efficient buildings and then to decarbonization of transport uh, and into a, a much faster rollout of renewable energies and then also into making some of the behaviors that have shifted to more green during the pandemic, making those more sticky, especially in terms of the transport habits that we have. So it makes a lot of sense to invest in the energy efficiency of buildings because of the fact that that is a job creator. When you retrofit the buildings, it demands you know, new roofs, new insulation, things, um, technical review, energy audits of the building. So that all creates jobs. At the same time, it helps people by reducing their utility bills. And there's a huge digital or fintech use case in, in exactly that because of the fact that what we see in some markets, such as in the Netherlands, where... The government has been very aggressive in setting targets. So they have regulated to say in 2023, any commercial real estate has to live up to at least energy label C, otherwise it cannot be rented out. And I think it's in 2030, but I might be wrong. It needs to be an energy label A or B or it cannot be rented out. So that has sort of forced that market to really use digital uh, to scale finance for energy-efficient mortgages. So what they do, um, some of the larger banks like Rabobank and ING, is that they use robo-retrofit uh, advisors. So they basically take the data points that you have in the commercial real estate or the in real estate registry you have from energy transaction data, et cetera, to do sort of a remote scan of a building. And then they do automated retrofit advice. And then they issue an energy efficient mortgage or loan where they tie it to different uh, performance criteria or metrics. And if you you perform on those metrics, so uh, retrofitting, but also changing your behaviors to lower energy consumption, then you get a rebate on, on your interest rate. Just in the whole kind of building retrofit tied to green mortgages, are you seeing a lot of that replicated across I mean, your your test case was in Netherlands, but are you seeing that replicated across uh, the continent and are there other global cases as well? Well, we're seeing quite a lot of it in in the plans, in the green recovery plans or measures that has been announced by governments. But whether that translates into market action and how is a bit less clear. And because mm -hmm. of a lot of the stimulus and, and recovery funds are more sort of public support 
for building retrofit rather than, than, than it's really scaling through the financial sector of energy efficient mortgages. So it's difficult to say at this point in time how, how much it has increased. Fair. But we see a number of other interesting use cases, for instance, in Milan, where they're leveraging fintech in their in their recovery plans. So, for instance, they're putting in GPSs into a number of urban bicycles or, or sharing bicycles in Milan because it's a it's a highly polluted city. And then they uh, they pay citizens per kilometer that they actually use a bike. And, and there are other countries that are that are trying to do the same, uh, that are really rolling out sort of bike lanes as part of their recovery and, and giving people tax breaks when they buy uh, bicycles. So to really try to make low carbon transport habits stick. Mm. It's going to be interesting to see the long term impacts of the recovery plans from the pandemic. Certainly. But also in the wake of this pandemic, SMEs on another related note are also being significantly impacted. And this is on top of the already existing financing gap for SMEs that are often viewed as more high risk enterprises, but also incredibly vital to economic systems pre-pandemic and obviously post-pandemic as well. How do you see that fintech can help SMEs generally and then more specifically on the green piece of this puzzle? And Do you see that there are ways that fintech can be harnessed to benefit existing green SMEs and to encourage more green SMEs? Yeah, I think definitely SMEs are are sort of the hardest hit in the pandemic. And we're seeing quite a lot of governments offering them either grants or guaranteed loans to get liquidity to them fast. They're leveraging fintech or digital payments. So on that side, there's quite a lot going on in terms of making those loans green. There's definitely lesser going on and less thinking in, in that in that way. And of course, we don't want to sort of put an extra burden on SMEs now. But mm-hmm. gov- governments could, I mean, because what we can see is that of the SMEs that have already had energy audits conducted, most of them, they don't implement the, the recommendations because they cannot get the loans from the banks because the banks see them as, as too high risk. So the governments could use the opportunity of this pandemic where they can put more money into the SMEs to then if they have an energy audit, then tie it to that they can actually implement the recommendations or just subsidize that they get these energy audits done uh, or even carbon footprinting across their value chains and then tailor some of the support to uh, to lowering those carbon footprints. Of course, what we see on the financial um, SME lending platform is trying to go into structure green lending for SMEs and doing the automated carbon footprint based on a number of criteria. So IFC and Ant Financial has developed a um, green scoring tool, which is basically taking ESG type tools that are used on big corporates and just tailoring it to SMEs and using Mm -hmm. only only digital data points so they can do that on at low transaction cost. And then really both giving, giving the SMEs a rebate on the interest rate if they live up to certain green criteria, but also when they then display their products on the e-commerce platform of Alibaba, then the, the greenness rating will be visible so that the clients will actually know if the product they're buying is more or less green. And also that they will get tailored advice to if they do not score the highest five star for being entirely green, then what does it take for them to move to be more green and incentivizing them via, via mm. financial incentives. So that's sort of where China is going. And I think in a few years, the, the, the world is probably going to follow in their footsteps, I would think. Oh, wonderful. So is this already something that is 
being implemented by ANT and IFC, or is it kind of just still in uh, very preliminary stages? Well, the, the greenness rating standard is developed uh, and it's being tested now on real-time data in uh, China. Oh. And then the idea is to have a number of expert consultations around it uh, to share it. That has been put a bit on hold because of the fact that you can't do convenings uh, face-to-face at the moment, uh, mm-hmm. but it's currently being tested. Yeah, so it, it's pretty far in its development, actually. Oh, great. Well, we'll stand by to hear more about that. I just, I think that's a very great targeted approach for SMEs. Now, I guess wanting to shift a little bit from the more fintech aspect to talk specifically about a report that the Alliance put out last year, I believe, using blockchain in support of green bonds. This is, I think, I feel like an extremely important link that could potentially really help scale the issuances of green bonds, which are the most predominant measure of green finance. And I think this year, because of the pandemic, has been moving a little bit slower than, than years past. But it's also still remains you know, a tiny fraction of the total bond market. Can you walk us through some of the key takeaways there and, and give us your thoughts on the development of the green bond market? Yeah, no, happy to. So, so yeah, we issued the report almost a year ago. So we wanted to, to look at what's the state of the digitization of the green bond market. And we started to trace it from, from really that digital green bond sort of left the innovation labs and into the market in 2018 by the issuance of the World Bank with CBA. Of, of an actual sustainability-linked uh, blockchain-powered bond and, and then to what did it look like a year ago. Because we knew that there's there wasn't sort of the case where it was end-to-end digitized from that everything was digital from you put in an order to you receive your coupon payment to you receive your proof of impact reporting. That wasn't where the market was. So we divided into looked at three steps in the in the bond process: uh, first, structuring, issuance, and distribution; two, transfer of ownership, payment, and settling; and three, reporting of use of proceeds and proof of impact. And then we looked at which of these three steps are most mature in that digitization. What are the what are the technology mixes, and what are the efficiency gains from those those uh, first experiences of digitization? And so we, we, we calculated that there was a 10x potential efficiency gain from, from digitizing end-to-end, but also that it was especially the third uh, application of reporting on use of proceeds and proof of impact that was currently not digitized that tended to continue to be very handheld, so reporting directly from the asset, whereas for structuring and issuance and ownership and payment uh, and settlement, there was some degree of digitization going on. We saw the issuance by um, BBVA of a digitized green bond, and we've seen a number of others since. But it's still really the pain point uh, of the, the, the green bond and which will really improve the credibility of the market, which we need, is that we can mm. really do the reporting so uh, directly from, from the asset uh, and, and do that efficiently. Uh, that, mm-hmm. that is still part, part of the future. Mm-hmm. Do we foresee a report in the future? <laughs> we would like to do, rather than a report, we would really like to do a prototype. So we would really like to do a demonstrator of an end-to-end uh, fully digitized green bond. And that would probably be most mature in a renewable energy asset uh, mm-hmm. because there you can do blockchain-enabled chips. You can integrate them directly in the asset and you can do automated reporting. So you can apply mm-hmm. algorithms to the raw data 
and get the uh, the impact metrics reported directly on a ledger to to the investors. So that that is where we would like to go. There there are some regulatory barriers that remain that makes it that it's only a few markets where you can really go in and test it at the moment. It's especially regulatory uncertainty around the status of crypto assets, which makes investors look at it as as more risky if it's on a ledger um, and they price in that risk. And of course, that pushes up the cost. So there is regulatory clarity moving along, especially in Europe and Asia, not so much in in Africa. But Mm. but we would definitely like to do a, a demonstrator on that. Yeah, even better. Just kind of being able to see it in real time is is much more interesting for the market. On a related topic as well, diversity of finance and the valuing of nature also seems like something that fintech could bring value to in terms of determining costs and pricing for the natural resources and for the environment. I know that the Alliance did some work on biodiversity finance last year. How do you see fintech being applied to biodiversity through those some of those experiences and moving forward? Yeah, I think that some of it sort of just extends from the discussion that we just had around green bonds, because your underlying asset could, of course, be a nature-based, right? So it could be a forest, it could be any other type of nature-based asset. And and one of the problems with nature-based asset is that most of the projects and assets are too small currently to travel to capital markets. It's very seldom that they scale beyond the, the $5 million mark. So when you apply blockchain and adjacent technologies to issue it as a fully digital bond, you can actually issue it cost efficiently at much lower for much smaller projects. So in that sense, it's a better match to the size of conservation assets. So so there's there's a clear use case uh, for trying to design some of these projects into digital bond issuances. And then, well, the whole sort of new data capabilities that fintech and adjacent technologies bring to the nature finance space both in terms of how it enables us to to monitor, for instance, Forest Watch or other platforms that are leveraging um, satellite data to monitor forest assets globally, that we are able to do sort of Earth-observed data of nature rather than having to do reporting because that would be way too costly if we wanted to structure an asset. And then also how it can enable us to, um, to innovate new products. I mean, we're seeing... Uh, Rabobank, for instance, they are in the process of designing a biodiversity linked loan, agricultural loan, where the interest rate will be tied to how the farmer perform on a number of biodiversity related metrics. So that's one that's sort of on the way. And then we've also looked quite a lot at um, the CBA they issued last year, BioToken, where they wanted to tokenize or digitize biodiversity offsets. So they saw in in their bank client portfolio, they had both those that do constructions, so they do hotels or roads or infrastructure, and they also have those that have um, natural reserves. So according to regulation, if you build an, a hotel that has a negative impact on biodiversity, you have to offset it and buy biodiversity credits somewhere else in the country. So, th- so mm-hmm. they did a marketplace for where you can do that because they thought as a bank, that's an interesting role to play. And even sort of the idea, they just tested it, is the, is the technology ready? Uh, is the market ready to, uh, to engage in that? But sort of the long-term vision, I think, is what is interesting. So they said, well, what we want to get at is when there is a fire in Australia and you see the koalas that are suffering, that you can sit in the Netherlands and you can go in and buy a koala token uh, on our platform and you can essentially sort of hold that uh, till the, the koala um, 
the koala start to um, to mature. And so you can essentially start to invest in nature, which is an appreciative asset if you sort of leave it alone for a while. So, uh, so, so there are loads of applications that are both in terms of sort of uh, enabling capital market instruments to better match the sizes of conservation assets. And then there are a number that are more closely related to sort of green loans and trying to incentivize biodiversity positive behaviors. This is all all really great, fascinating. Um, I think biodiversity is one of the key things that uh, a lot of people are starting to see now that there, there are a number of wildfires, a number of um, weather-related incidences, and it just becomes a little bit more tangible. And, you know, as, as we've been conversing today, you know, we've we talked about some of the, uh, we've mentioned some of the challenges that green finance and sustainable development is, is still facing, regulatory um, impediments, uh, cost impediments. Um, and, you know, I think one concern that always ranks pretty highly is with, uh, with data and, you know, how it's tied to how um, it's harvested, utilized, protected, regulated, all of that. You know, the list is pretty long with data. Um, and if we're using fintech for good, you know, kind of what are the concerns about data, you know, if they continue to exist, what are the implications for green finance and sustainable development? And kind of what are your thoughts on balancing that uh, equation? That's a really good question, because this is where sort of the space is probably least mature. I mean, we're of course seeing, and it depends on what types of data we're talking about. So if we're talking about personal data, then of course, we're seeing more and more uh, private, private data laws or privacy data laws applicable in the market. But then a lot of this data we're talking about, especially in green finance and in biodiversity finance, it's not it's not personal data, it's machine-generated data. And there, this is still a, a, an unregulated space mainly. But in the EU, the regulators are discussing whether they need to have sort of a data producer rights, whether that needs to be introduced. And that is mainly because of the fact that the regulators want to protect the consumers. So especially if you're, for instance, a farmer and you get your fertilizer over a digital platform and they want to give you rights to take that your own data that you generate on that platform, even though it might be machine generated, it might be IoT directly from your farm that communicates mm-hmm. about soil fertility that then gives you the exact fertilizer you need, even if it's not your personal data footprint, but it's your farm machine data footprint that you still own that data. So you're not locked in to one platform, uh, but it's still a discussion because you know, for these um, agricultural or fintech platforms, you still need all that data to do your innovation properly and to really innovate that next product. So it that's one of the reasons and sort of the balancing act around, you know, should it be maybe a GDPR type construction where you don't own your data, but you have the right to control your data. And I think that's that thinking is probably what we're going to have to discuss much more and see much more that we as consumers do not necessarily own our data or the machine generated data, but we can control the usage of it, or at least we should be asked and have consent. And I think that's some of the thinking we have to bring with us and also ask ourselves, can we design the data regulation so it incentivizes innovation, but it also Mm -hmm. incentivizes sharing of the benefits from the data generated from both the plat- for both the platforms, but also the users that are generating the data. So in, there's one, for instance, there's one example, which is called Fishcoin, which is basically a ledger that incentivizes fishermen around the world, small-scale fishers, 
to collect data on their catch for traceability regulation, but also layering in sustainability information about their catch and then giving them micropayments in return for that data. Uh, so they get incentivized to collect more data on the catch so we can get a greater history of the fish and get greater transparency in the value chains if we want to invest in it. But also that they start to be aware of their own behaviors and that those behaviors are worth more if they are more sustainable. So the whole sort of sharing of benefits of the data is something we haven't really started to entirely talk about yet. Mm-hmm. Indeed, this is going to be an, an ongoing conversation as uh, the market develops. And so I think, you know, today we've touched on the pandemic, SMEs, green bonds, biodiversity, data trends, and we've covered a lot, certainly. And as you know, we did a quick look into the Chinese green fintech space with four case studies last year. Um, and so I think to just round up the conversation, I would want to listen to what you see as part of your outlook for fintech in the short to medium term. And what should we all be watching out for, learning more about, in addition to some of the themes that we've talked about today? Yeah, I think the um, the IoT, the fintech IoT integration, we've done a number of mappings of markets of the state of fintech, sustainable fintech. And it's quite clear that that is a very early trend, that most of of the fintechs currently leverage existing databases for, for the data, but definitely the integration with IoT is going to be the next step. And also leveraging leveraging fintech or innovating fintech for our financial sector so it's able to transition away from self-reported data from the companies they invest in to observed data, so satellite data, remote sensed data, etc. There are more and more of these companies coming up that are doing sort of um, satellite images for heat mapping of buildings, for instance, if you want to see where can you do retrofits or that can monitor um, the greenness of value chains. So I think that's one thing we're going to see much more of. And then especially trying to get some of the green financial instruments to also work for, yeah, for like we talked about for SMEs, but also for individuals that we can use fintech just like in the Ant Forest application to get carbon markets closer to working also for you and me, and that we can be incentivized and we can monetize if we shift our behaviors. I think that's definitely in the pipeline. Great. I think fintech is definitely something in general to just kind of be excited about and and to watch as it grows and transforms, really. So just one last quick one. What are some ways that you live a green lifestyle? Are you participating in Ant Forest? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's difficult outside of China. That's my. Right. I, I, I wish it would move here. We have another one in the Nordics, actually in Europe, which is is a totally okay. different thinking. It has um, it's if you get that the payment solution, then it has a carbon and a carbon limit built into it. So once you hit your carbon limit, it just blocks your card, and you can't consume more that month. So um, okay. so that's sort of punishing where Ant is rewarding positive externalities, it's, it's, it's punishing you. But so um, I, I sold my car a few years ago, and that was because it was sort of the heaviest part of my individual carbon budget. Mm-hmm. So I do only yeah. public transport, which is regrettably uh, often more expensive than taking a car. So, um, so that's one thing. Uh, I make sure that my pension is invested in green assets, and then I have three girls and I give 50% of their pocket money is what we call green pocket money. So they can only be spent on green. So, um, oh, 
yeah, and that generates a lot of discussion. In the beginning, they just started buying plants because they didn't know like, how do you recognize a green product, right? So they said, at least plant, that's, um, and now they've started to be a bit more sophisticated and started to learn more about because you can't see it on a product, right? So, uh, so mm-hmm. that generates a lot of discussion. Yeah, so those are three things. Wow, uh, that, that's definitely a lot of discussion for three uh, three girls that are you know trying to see uh, you know can my pocket money buy new clothes and new shoes? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And how do I see the carbon footprint? They they can't really, right? That's the big problem in the right. market today. Right. Yeah. Thanks for joining the podcast, Marianne. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you for joining us on Green Team Speaks Too. To listen to more episodes and learn more about the Paulson Institute's work in green finance, please visit us at paulsoninstitute.org. See you next time.